the bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Axel Merck, uh, who has got uh, the fund manager for two mutual funds, uh, the Merck Hard Currency Fund and the Merck Asian Currency Fund. Welcome to the show, Axel. Good to be with you, Jordan. Uh, let's just start a little bit with your background before we get into your view of the economy and where people should be investing in, in their money and so on. Just, just start a little bit with uh, the background you've gotten to where you are today. Sure. Nowadays, most people know us as folks who have predicted this credit crisis and who, who offer two, two mutual funds. But that's not how we started out. Um, we, we started out as a traditional investment advisor back in 1994 in Switzerland, actually. I launched a, a, an offshore investment fund. And we were investing in technology companies bottom-up um, but always diversified to other industries to manage volatility. In the second half of the 90s, um, we realized that diversification didn't work anymore and um, because the bubble was forming, the, the tech bubble was forming. So we became more global investors, launching new products in that direction. And then around 2000, we became more macro-style investors. We're investing much more in, in cash and precious metals. And um, then in, in 2001, we took the business to California, and uh, in that process, as we, we traditionally had uh, individual clients, separate account customers, uh, we weren't willing to invest in equities um, because of the, the brewing storm, so to speak, in the, in the credit markets. And uh, we decided to really re-engineer our business and in 2003 and 2004 started to, to develop a product that when we came to the market with in, in 2005, our hard currency fund, um, and uh, this year we came to the market with an Asian currency fund, basically allowing investors to diversify to, to other currencies um, outside of the dollar if they're worried that the dollar is going to be under pressure without using leverage or speculating in those currencies. And uh, a couple of months ago, we finally phased out our separate accounts business. We were holding, only holding cash for those customers in, in recent months, and we told them, well, we're not going to buy any equities for you. Um, rather take your money to other advisors. Uh, we are now a full mutual fund-only company. And uh, as far as we are concerned, we are now have a, a more scalable business model in, in being able to provide mutual funds to the marketplace, and we hope that that's how we can serve our, our clients the best. Um, and it was a, a very uh, evolution, so to speak, to move from a traditional investment advisor to, to a mutual fund company nowadays. So what do you offer that traditional mutual funds who have to be pretty much fully invested in stocks uh, you know, are not offering these days uh, when we're, we're in a bear market? Well, we offer diversification, and uh, we do it with baskets of currencies. We have a, a managed basket of hot currencies and a managed basket of Asian currencies. And what that basically means is that in our hot currency fund, um, we buy currencies like the euro, like the Swiss franc or the Canadian dollar, and then in those currencies we buy short-term money market instruments, and in the current environment that's mostly treasury bills. We, we publish our holdings on a monthly basis, far more frequent than any mutual fund does. And what you get is you get the exposure to the currency, but you don't have the equity risk because you don't buy, we don't buy equities. And unlike your typical international bond fund, 
um, we buy only very short-term money market type instruments. So our, our maturity is measured in days rather than, than years. And uh, we try to minimize the interest risk um, by, by buying only top-tier rated securities. And, and again, we're just buying T-bills mostly. Um, these days, we're allowed to buy corporate securities as well. We've been on the, on the forefront of warning about many of the structured products and many of the, uh, the, the more dangerous debt securities out there. And so uh, it's a diversification vehicle that allows you to get out of the dollar in, in the case of the hard currency fund into the hard currencies. In the case of the Asian currency fund, we buy, um, we, we, we give investors the exposure to the Asian currencies nowadays, in particular to the, the Chinese renminbi, the currency of China. I currently have about 70% exposure to that currency. Um, unlike in, in our hard currency space, you can't buy many Asian currencies directly or you don't want to because you don't know what the governments there may do with the money. And so in the Asian currency fund, we, we work more with forward contracts um, and stay with U.S. Treasury bills mostly where you just make a promise to buy the currency in the future and then, uh, then you roll those contracts forward. Um, something in the Asian currency, in the hard currency fund, we try not to do because we want to stay away from any sort of derivative to the extent possible. But in the Asian currency fund, that's the most practical way to get exposure to them. And so if anybody thinks that, um, that the dollar may be under resumed pressure, if, um, if the type of spending, for example, that's necessary to get out of the current problems um, may have a negative impact on the dollar, and I, we can talk about that more in, in a few yes. minutes, um, then, uh, then that is one way beyond, say, only buying gold or something like that that may help investors to, to diversify. Since you're in short-term instruments, uh, I assume you don't have much of a yield since these are yielding less than 1%. What is the overall yield on both the hard currency and the Asian fund? Yes, um, the, the yield that we have is a bit um, misleading because we have to publish the SEC standardized yield, which is really the net investment income. And uh, so it happens that during periods when the dollar is falling and, uh, and if our fund goes up, um, because we, we have a lot of short-term gains, because our short-term maturities mature so frequently, we can have a, a yield of 6-7% that's published, um, but it's really the net investment income after expenses. In practice, we do buy, as you point out, the short-term money market instruments that have a very low yield, and especially in the current environment where sometimes T-bills, and there are also T-bills issued by foreign governments, trade at extremely low levels, we tend to prefer buying the T-bill with a very, very low yield over buying a higher-yielding debt security that, that may be questionable. Um, for example, at the height of the crisis, we were offered by a European bank, a reputable bank, 4.8% um, uh, return or, or yield for a one-month um, time deposit. And instead, we opted to buy a T-bill that yielded um, between 1% and 2%. So we tried to choose the, the safer instruments when we're given a choice with two instruments. Obviously, we, we, we cannot say that we have a safe fund because we, uh, we do have the currency risk. We're trying to give that in a non-leveraged format. Um, but still, given the types of instruments we, 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 we can offer and we can buy, um, we tend to buy the the one that we think is more prudent, and much of it is shaped that um, that I'm not only the portfolio manager, but I also have a substantial amount of my own money in these uh, in these funds, and I wouldn't want to buy many of these instruments out there right now, even if they at first sight look attractive, because something that looks attractive might get even more attractive tomorrow, meaning that the price may go down further. 
just tell us some of the basics about the fund. Uh, what is the website and the phone number, and uh, what's the minimum investment to get in? Sure. The, the funds are retail funds, so um, $2,500 um, for, for regular accounts or 1000 for retirement accounts. Um, the best place to get information is really the, the, the website, merkfund.com, M-E-R-K-F-U-N-D.com, or call 866-MERK-FUND, that's M-E-R-K-F-U-N-D, um, or Google, Google my name, Axel Merck. That's probably the easiest way. Get a hold of a prospectus. And uh, on the website, uh, one of the very useful tools is, aside from us publishing past newsletters where we publish a lot about the economy, about the drivers that have led to the current credit crisis, and, and um, we, we publish a lot of also media quotes where, you, where we allow people to get an up-to-date view of how our thinking is. We also publish a newsletter there that, where you can sign up um, right on our website, and um, that's probably the, one of the best place to, places to stay um, on top of the types of things happening in the markets, the credit markets in particular. And, and the reason I say that is because um, we are active in the short-term fixed income markets, but we don't hold any of the toxic materials. The media have come to us more than most people in, in discussing the types of things that are happening. Most others that, uh, that are involved in these markets hold many of the toxic assets, and uh, don't really want to talk with the media. Oh, well, let's go back into history a little bit here, the recent history, when you kind of changed your uh, philosophy after the tech bubble had, had burst in 2001 to 2003. Uh, at that time, uh, interest rates were being uh, brought down, as they have been today, down to 1% on the Fed funds. Um, and the, that kind of sparked this huge uh, real estate housing boom. Uh, what were you seeing that other people were not seeing as to why this was actually an unhealthy development? But at the time, it looked like it was a, a great party that everybody was enjoying, and it was very healthy. Well, what became apparent very early on after the tech bubble burst is that the recovery was driven by a growth in credit and not by a growth in real wages. And whereas corporations were actually quite reasonable at the time, um, corporations decided to to reduce their debt and expand the, the maturity of the debt, uh, refinancing with longer-term debt, um, the government decided to shorten the, 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 the duration profile of their own debt portfolio, meaning issuing more short-term securities, getting rid of the 30-year bond, um, temporarily of issuing that. And, um, and consumers, um, foremost, decided to, um, to take um, adjustable rate mortgages, to take... Um, to, to really shorten the duration and increase the debt profile that they have. And when that happens, when, when you take out more and more debt, um, you become much less shock-resistant. Um, we've had this amazing change happening since probably about 1990 when, when people uh, only bought their house on credit, taking out a mortgage, uh, to then leasing a car rather than paying cash for it. And then suddenly, in, in recent years, everything, including your mattress, has been bought on credit. And while that works very well during a boom, it makes you much, much more interest rate sensitive. You're much less shock resistant. If you lose a job, you can fall through the cracks. And if it's not accompanied by a rise in real wages, then you may have an issue. And one of the things that happened since then is you had this, this real drive for a global overproduction. Um, you, you entice consumers to spend more. Asia was coming onto the field by, by exporting cheap goods, by subsidizing their exchange rates. And 
what happened with corporate America, they were really squeezed in the middle with no pricing power. Uh, commodity prices were going up because of this global overproduction, because of this artificial boom, um, and then consumers didn't have to pay much um, because they had this oversupply coming in from Asia, and they couldn't pay much because they couldn't afford to pay more. And so what corporate America did, they accelerated their, out, their, their, their outsourcing by driving jobs overseas. And the only question was really, well, why didn't this stop in, in 2004 when, when the Federal Reserve started um, raising interest rates? Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we had a new theme coming into the market there, and um, I'll be glad to expand on to that. So you're saying basically it was a kind of an artificial boom uh, fed by debt and particularly by the Federal Reserve lowering interest rates. Now, the Federal Reserve has done it again. I mean, here we are back to 1%. Um, is it different this time, or, or is it just creating a new boom here? Well, what, what happened, and, and for that we have to step back to 2004, is that in 2004 the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates. And everybody said at the time, well, this is the end of the consumer bubble. Um, consumer has to stop spending now, and surprise, surprise, it didn't stop. And what happened was that we had kind of shifted in the world to a world where we thought that there's no risk in the world anymore. The volatility in the markets, the, the, the daily swings um, were very, very low in the market. And when everybody was feeling comfortable about the future, what happened is that everybody was taking out even more leverage. And it wasn't just the consumer. It was now um, businesses doing the same thing, banks, hedge funds, everybody. And when everybody takes out an extra loan, when everybody uses their home as an ATM machine, then that money has to flow somewhere. And the Federal Reserve didn't do anything about it. It allowed that expansion in money supply, that expansion in credit, where money was stuffed into equities into bonds commodities real estate international markets very unhealthy normally you'd have one market go up we're another one go down okay we're gonna take a break actually we're gonna take a break it's very interesting we're just going to come back after this i'm speaking with axel merck of the merck funds who, who runs a hard currency fund and we'll be back after this Internet's only all business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. What can you tell me about Skills USA? Skills USA teaches you employability skills. So you know how to deal with people, you have teamwork, your resume is going to look awesome. Well, it's important to know your technical skills, but not only that, to have soft skills, the skills of learning how to communicate with people. On the web at skillsusa.org. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. 
Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying, and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Axel Merck, uh, who is the portfolio manager of the Merck Hard Currency Fund and also the Merck Asian Currency Fund. Welcome back to the show, Axel. Yes, hi. We were just talking about the... uh, the kind of the boom of 2004, uh, which was being funded by low interest rates, uh, expansion of credit, uh, the money was going into the, uh, the stock market, the bond market, the real estate market, the commodities market, everything was going great. So, so why didn't that party last forever? Why, why? Well, well the, the, the important thing here is that it was the market driving the credit expansion and not being raided in by the Federal Reserve. And the reason why that aspect is so very relevant is that now, as of early 2007, Fear has come back into the market. Volatility has come back in the market. Volatility is the enemy of credit expansion. When you have an uncertain environment, people have to pare down their risk exposure. They have to reduce the leverage. They have to reduce anything and everything they've put money in before. And that's why you have this kind of uniform implosion, this, this money flowing out of all asset classes. And the biggest problem of it all is, because it was the market creating that, uh, creating that credit, it is now the market that is requesting a credit contraction. It's the market that is pulling out that, that money from everywhere. And central banks are powerless in the process. I mean, it was Greenspan, the, the former uh, Federal Reserve president, who said that Federal Res- uh, central banks are less effective, less relevant than they used to be. And it's precisely that, that if you allow a a credit expansion to get out of control, then it is extremely too difficult to, to manage the contraction. And, and traditionally, central banks want to then have a counter that. And that is one of the reasons the volatility is, is so extreme right now, because on the one hand, you have the market that wants to have a very severe recession. And on the other hand, you have policymakers that say, no, we don't want that. We want to reflate this, this bubble. We want to keep things going. We don't want to have a severe recession or a depression. And we do everything in our power to go against it. And so depending on which of these two major forces is taking the upper hand of the day, um, the, the market is plunging or the market is trying to rally. So you're saying, in retrospect, uh, the Federal Reserve in the United States and other banks around the world should have raised interest rates and constricted credit more actively in 2004, even earlier to some extent. Um, yes, and, and that did happen in Europe. The, the, everybody was laughing about Europe um, at the, the early part of the decade because consumer spending um, was lackluster because the economy didn't grow much. Um, but what happened was that European consumer savings was up. 
that um, the structurally the European consumer was in a much, much better shape. And so now they're much better equipped to deal with the fallout of the crisis. Whereas it was both the U.S. and Asia that, that was just, um, they were cheering um, each other on about how much growth they could potentially have. And, and obviously when, when you have too much growth, you have overproduction, misallocation of assets. Nowadays you call them bubbles. And uh, when the tide turns, that can be very, very painful. And uh, it was Greenspan, again, who said, oh, he doesn't, uh, he'd rather uh, worry about the fallout than trying to prevent um, uh, than trying to be in the, in the business of managing asset prices. But the, the, the big misconception here is that the Federal Reserve is always in the business of managing asset prices. Um, if you have a federal funds target rate, if you manage interest rates, you're always influencing um, asset prices. So you've just got to be very prudent, and when you see the alarm bells go off by having money flow into every single asset class, you have a very clear signal that things are overheating, that things are going too far, and that you should be doing something about it, and the Federal Reserve didn't. And now they have to deal with the consequences, and it's very expensive and very, very painful. Let's talk particularly about the real estate market, where uh, low interest rates and the adjust rate mortgages and interest-only mortgages and subprime and all these things that were coming out uh, really caused a, a huge boom in real estate for a long time. Uh, is that something you think uh, the Federal Reserve you know, planned and wanted to have happen as a way of having the economy recover from 9-11 and the recession of 2003? Well, every, every boom feels very good. And, and so the, the problem is, of course, if you, if you generate assets um, from, uh, generate income from assets only rather than production, um, it's unlikely to be sustainable. And so it can only be a short-term patch. And, and um, one of the, the big misconceptions is that somehow that it's a good thing to have soaring real estate prices. It's obviously good for those who own real estate, but make, it makes real estate much less affordable. When Fannie Mae was, was introduced in the 1930s, it was supposed to subsidize home ownership. Well, it's like a Ponzi scheme. It subsidizes the first person in, but for every subsequent person, it's far more difficult to get a home. And, and so um, that, that party lasted um, for a good 70 years, and, and it was great for that. But now um, the, the hangover is, is rather severe. And the real problem is that now we should allow market forces to have a proper adjustment. Um, folks who bought houses that they couldn't afford in the first place would be best served if they downsized to a smaller home. But no policymaker wants to hear that. Instead, we're trying to find ways to keep homeowners in their homes. And while that may sound nice from a social level, on a macroeconomic level, it's, it's disastrous um, be, because what's happening is that um, somebody who couldn't fix the roof um, until, uh, now, you're going to now make it possible for them to stay in the home, which means that once they have renegotiated the loan, almost all the disposable income will go into that mortgage and uh, they cannot put any money aside. Whereas if you allow that person to downside, be that through bankruptcy, be that through the bank taking a loss or some other means, then you can start at a lower level and you can start putting money aside. You can have a, a lifestyle within your means. You start creating savings and you can make that money work in the economy again. That's why a crash in the stock market, well, as painful as it is, is a, is a much healthier method. You have the crash and you start afresh. Whereas if you prop a broken system up, um, you're just extending the agony. And it's a, and unfortunately, the price has to be paid for all the prudent people, for all the savers, because the way we're going to fix this thing is, is, uh, is through inflation. Um, if, 
you don't allow, if you don't want to allow home prices to go lower, the alternative is to try to get the prices of everything else to go higher so that the relative prices of houses isn't so high anymore. And that's precisely, in my view anyway, what the Federal Reserve wants to do. Um, Bernanke, the current Federal Reserve chairman, in, uh, says repeatedly that the great thing about Roosevelt's policies in the 1930s was to, to get off the gold standard, to allow the price level to adjust to the pre-1929 level, meaning he wants asset prices to go higher. And that is the one way you can bail out anybody with debt through inflation. The U.S. government has a lot of debt. Homeowners have a lot of debt. And so we may be seeing a lot of inflation. Now, currently, um, it looks like people are more worried about deflation than inflation yes. um, because of dynamics that I'll be glad to get into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it, it seems everything you see around, you see oil prices have gone from 150 to 60. You've seen commodity prices crash, I think is the right word for it. Uh, you've seen real estate prices crash. Right now, what people are worried about more is deflation. And they're saying that as much money as the U.S. government is putting into, not only the U.S., but governments around the world, are putting into the markets, it's nothing close to the level of depreciation. I mean, uh, the stock market has lost, what, $8 trillion in value this year, the real estate market, 3 to $4 trillion. So, yes, we're putting a lot of money back in, but they're saying it's not even close to what's been lost in the depreciation and the deflation going on in asset values. Yeah, what, what's happening is those two forces playing out I discussed before, the market wanting to have deflation, the government wanting to have inflation. And what happened in October was that we were at this critical point um, where, we, where we were at risk of a, of a complete collapse of the financial system when the short-term credit markets seized up. Mm -hmm. And when, when, people, when we were afraid that a General Electric couldn't, couldn't get the uh, short-term loan anymore to, um, to, to finance the next salary. And what happened then is then the government came up with the, the program to stabilize the system. And some people are wondering, well, why isn't this the bottom? Why shouldn't we now go up? And what happened then is that um, we pretty much changed the scenario from a chaotic decline to an orderly decline. And so now we, we've allowed a, a more orderly mechanism. You want to have financial institutions to be strong enough to bear this unwinding in the economy. And the reason, though, I'm still talking about inflation is that um, I very much doubt that the policymakers are going to stop here. If we were to stop at what we've done so far, we might be able to allow it for an orderly adjustment, and we might be able to flush out those prices to go back to more orderly base. But we have a new Congress come in, and it is quite likely that they will do anything in their power to try to boost this economy again. And that, I believe, will be extremely expensive, extremely inflationary. It's the cure to a problem that's usually far more inflationary than the problem itself. So uh, what is the cycle? I mean, you, we are, you agree we're in a deflationary cycle right now, but you're saying we're setting the groundwork for inflation down the road. What, what, are we going to be in a deflation for the next year or so and then inflation starts up, or kind of what is the, the timing of all this? Well, given that policymakers are changing the rules of the game almost every day these days, it is extremely difficult to make such a forecast. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, and, and most people are just trying to stand on the sideline right now because um, they just don't know what's going to happen. It really depends how aggressive the government is going to be and whether they'll get it right or wrong, whether they'll give just enough stimulus to get things rolling um, or they'll go overboard um, or they'll put the money in the wrong places. Now, I happen to be fairly pessimistic about how we'll proceed, um, just because if I add up all the money that we need to generate um, to, to just 
institute the programs that are in the pipeline will need to raise about two trillion dollars next year and if you think about it who is going to buy all this debt and traditionally it is asia that's jumping in buying the the debt that that we issue in the u.s and asia now has less trade with the u.s because american consumers spend less and they want to deploy their own money domestically to to stabilize and boost their own economies and so what that means is that the cost of borrowing has to go up in the U.S. Now, that is the one thing that the Federal Reserve doesn't want. The Federal Reserve wants to have low interest rates, not just short-term interest rates, but also long-term interest rates that are short. And if you think about how that has to play out is that we will see more government involvement in the credit allocation game, potentially having the government even go out and buy long-term bonds in order to reduce that rate. And the one valve that's there is the U.S. dollar that, that may suffer tremendously in that process. Now, whether that's going to happen within a couple of weeks, months, or may, whether it's going to take a year or two, I'm not sure. But I do believe that once the, the hype about the election is, is settling down, it will become very clear that the, that the new Congress will, will have very clear powers to institute any program that they want to do. And um, in light of that, there is a very serious risk that they're trying to spend a lot of money and the market will tell them, oh, my God, you're spending too much money. How about you pay a little bit more interest rates for that? And okay. that, in turn, is going to give another nosedive on the housing market. And that may create an extremely difficult situation for the Federal Reserve. Okay, we, we have to go to a break, Axel. Very good. Okay. Very interesting stuff. <laughs> well, uh, I'm speaking with Axel Merck of the Merck uh, Hard Currency Fund. Uh, and we'll be back after this. The bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart. Grow profit. And grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Grow Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. America is facing a skilled workforce shortage. SkillsUSA can help. What is SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA is life-changing. SkillsUSA is awesome. SkillsUSA is one of the biggest opportunities life can give you. SkillsUSA is amazing. SkillsUSA is motivating. SkillsUSA specifically prepares you for the workforce. SkillsUSA empowers students to connect with a network of people, starting with their classmates, to their advisors, to other people in their states. SkillsUSA allows students to connect with business and industry, 
to manage their education and to really get a feel of the real world. I'm doing something now that's going to be applicable in the real world and those skills are going to be useful today in school and in five years when I'm working and for the rest of my life. On the web at skillsusa.org. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Axel Merck uh, of the Merck Hard Currency Fund, and he also has an Asian currency fund as well. Welcome back to the show, Axel. Yes, hi. Uh, we were just kind of talking about the, uh, the deflation and inflation uh, uh, forces that are going on here. As I'm understanding what you're saying, you, you would say it would be better not, in effect, to try to uh, counteract the deflationary forces out there with the bailout programs and uh, putting money into Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and AIG and all the things that we're doing here, not only domestically but around the world. Um, that as painful as it might be, it's going to be less painful in the long run to kind of let these things collapse and come back from it than to try to keep the game going a little bit longer and having more and more reflation. Is that what you're, you're saying? In, in general, yes. But then again, um, talk is cheap. And when you're actually in, in Washington and have to make policy decisions, it's, it's pretty tough to say, oh, we're, we're going to let uh, millions of homeowners lose their home. Um, we've been involved in the public discussion a little bit about that recapitalization um, plan, the top program, and we were the first to come out in public and say, if you're going to use $700 billion, use them widely, give capital to the institutions. And our argument is that if you want to do something as a government, then you want to make sure that you have an orderly adjustment. Um, you, you, want to, you want to provide a pretty much the conduit so that the price adjustment can happen. And then, yes, there will be still a huge surge in unemployment. There will be a surge in, in, in people losing their homes, but you don't want the system as a whole to break apart. And partially because policymakers were dragging their feet, we, we came to that stage that we, we got to in October where, um, where we were at the place where we would have had pretty much the entire world economy run against the wall, whereas if we had been from the very beginning much more forceful in forcing banks to raise capital and in being much more forceful in requiring transparency, um, things may not have gotten as bad as it has. And, uh, and, and so, of course, the longer you wait, the, the more difficult and the more expensive it got. And then, um, then we had uh, this here. We had the government intervene a couple of times. Whenever the government intervened, um, it, it, they pretty much punished the equity holders. And that may sound very good, but at the same time, it reduces the incentive um, for, for new equity capital to come in. Um, the Treasury Department went over to Asia to, to, uh, to convince um, Asia to inject money into Fannie Mae, and a few weeks later they wipe out the equity holders. Mm -hmm. That's not a very good precedent to try to attract capital. And then they've done a 180-degree U-turn uh, with the capital injection program where they're providing money at 5%, where you have to give the government 5%. Well, again, you're providing a disincentive to um, for the banks now to raise capital because you can get cheap money from the government, whereas it's much more expensive. You pay Warren Buffett um, 10% to get it from the private industry. 
And so what we had argued is you need to team up with the bank, with the private sector, raise capital, and say you need to raise sufficient capital so that you're going to be safe throughout this um, economic decline, which also means you need to create a decent buffer. It's not good enough to have a tier one capital ratio of 6%. In Switzerland, the government took the bad debt of UBS. They now have a tier one ratio of 12%. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to have a substantial buffer so that when there is a further decline, and I'm convinced the housing market is going to come down further, that you're not going to be in the same situation again, where it's going to be again expensive. And, and so, um, yes, you should allow the market forces to play out, and having these, these patched-up solutions creates a whole set of unintended consequences that, in the end, increase volatility in the markets and make the cost of this um, far, far more expensive, and, and now you're getting Congress more and more involved, and um, that is pretty much a guarantee that things are going to be highly inefficient. Of course, the common view of what you're proposing here, uh, just the person on the street, is all the $700 billion is going to bail out the banks and their uh, big executive pay packages and allow one bank to buy another, you know, like J.P. Morgan buying Washington Mutual and PNC buying National City and on and on. And that, uh, meanwhile, the average person, the voter on the street, is losing their home so it's just a big bailout for the big financial institutions. That's kind of the common view. How would you counteract uh, that? Well, it's not so much counteracting. It, that, that, that is the reason why, why there's going to be much more money spent. Um, but as far as the macroeconomy is concerned, that would be the healthier approach. Now, now to that point about the, the banks not lending any money, the, the, the excess reserves at banks, there is a statistic published by the, the Federal uh, Reserve Bank of St. Louis that shows that on the typical months, banks hold about, in, in aggregate, about $2 billion in excess of what they would be um, required by, by the statute. And that has surged to over $135 billion to about $136 billion, meaning that the banks are just um, pulling in that capital and not lending it. And you need two conditions to be met um, for, for banks to lend money. One is the banks need to feel healthy enough about themselves, and the other one is they need to be, feel healthy enough about the customers they're lending money to. And the first condition, I'm not so sure whether we have met that. We've, we are still not at the stage where we've raised enough capital for them to be be comfortable, and there, that is why it is so urgent that the private sector is included, and that's why you cannot just in, rely on, on the capital injection from the government. And the other one is about the, con- about the, the consumer not being healthy enough. Um, again, the government has provided disincentives to lend to the consumer. Let me just give you an example. Um, mm-hmm. Traditionally, when you, when you use your credit card, banks are collateralizing um, those credit card portfolios and selling them off in the market. And traditionally, um, that, that market worked even during the recent crisis. But now, with these bank guarantees that have come out, um, the buyers are, are leaving for these credit card portfolios, and, um, and the banks have to keep them on their own balance sheet. Now, you can bet that the, the, that the consumer credit is going to worsen over the next couple of months, which means rather than being able to load off that risk, to other pay- people who are fully aware of these risks but pay the appropriate price for it, the banks are going to reduce the lending. And, and, so, um, and, and then, of course, you have this other side of the equation that you talk about, about the, 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 the lack of the bailout of the consumer. Mm-hmm. And what the government has to focus on is to have a healthy, healthy dynamic in the marketplace. And there, it is extremely harmful to throw out 200 years of proven bankruptcy law and replacing it with a patchwork of capital injections and the like. And, and yes, once you go down the road of inge- uh, capital injections, everybody wants to have one. And it seems like the most recent one is the automotive industry, and it looks like the Treasury has rebuffed them. 
There, yes. Um, there's an example where a um, where where a bankruptcy proceeding is the far healthier approach. Whereas if you injected money now before General Motors was to declare bankruptcy. Um, it would be a waste of money because you do need to have that process work through the system. And, and they are... Um, I mean, if something like that happens, like, say General Motors goes bankrupt and, and Chrysler too, I mean, isn't that like a major part of the economy, employment and the suppliers, uh, the car dealerships well, and so on? I mean, bankruptcy, bankruptcy law, we've seen it in the airline industry, is nothing but another business transaction. It wipes out the equity holders, but it allows them to, to renegotiate all the liabilities they have. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to have massive job losses in that sector. People are estimating if Chrysler and General Motors were to, to merge, we'd only have, in quotes, 70,000 job losses. And if they don't merge, we'll have many, many more. Um, so uh, the, the problem is not now about them getting money. The problem is mistakes that these companies have made over decades. And it's unfortunate. And part of that has been the, the low interest rate policies in recent years driven this economy to adjust to a globalized outsourcing economy in record pace. Hadn't we had these low interest rates, um, we would have less economic growth, but we would have given these companies more time to adjust. And so now, of course, everybody is screaming, but it doesn't help. We need to have make radical adjustments. And the more we prop up a broken system, um, the more painful it, it, it gets. Take, take another example, um, the, the commercial paper market. Um, a company like General Electric was financing every single day $10 billion for their daily financing needs. Well, um, what happens if you have long-term obligations and you finance them with, with long-term um, borrowing? Well, odds are that one day um, there's no access to money, which is exactly what happened in October. And so we need to change the way these companies do business, meaning they have to match their long-term liabilities um, and, and their, their long-term revenue streams. And you cannot do this thing of trying to gamble that your short-term money is going to be available. And if you were a little tougher with, with, with corporations, they would adjust the ways they do business. But if you're going to guarantee the entire banking system, if you're going to have capitalism without risk, um, you're creating enormous distortions, and you're going to have a lot of people cry foul that why are they the ones um, doing the proper savings when at the same time um, the government is there to bail out all the big companies? It really kind of makes the people who've been irresponsible the winners and the ones who've been responsible the losers. <laughs> the, the responsible are subsidizing the irresponsible, I guess you might say. Yes. Uh, having said that, I mean, we can complain all we want and we can come up with our dream policies. The, the fact of the matter is we have to live with what the government is, is giving to us. And there, um, as investors and as individuals, uh, we just have to get to used to a, a very unpredictable world with government intervention. And if you have the nerve, then yes, go ahead and, and try to gamble on a bailout. But if you don't have the nerve from that, then you've got to live in your means, uh, you've got to um, reduce your debt, and you've got to be very, very cautious because um, odds are that you just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that's precisely what's happening. Um, consumers are paring down. Um, businesses are paring down. Um, hedge funds are exiting the business because there is no transparency. If there's one thing worse than high taxes is a uncertainty about what the tax policy is going to be, uncertainty about the regulatory environment, then people just decide not to engage in, in, in risky business transactions. Yes. And that's much more poisonous than anything else you can imagine. Okay, interesting situation. We're going to go to a break, and then we're going to come back and talk about the investment implications of the scenario you've talked about here. I'm speaking with uh, Axel Merck, who is the fund manager of the, Axel, uh, of the Merck 
hard currency fund. Again, you can find out about that fund at MERCfund.com, M-E-R-K fund.com, or 866-MERC-FUND. We'll be back after this. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. Achieve total wealth management. Listen to three-dimensional wealth with Rory Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, right here on Voice America Business. Three-Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a value-based approach to comprehensive wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road to financial independence. Listen to Three-Dimensional Wealth with Rory Diefendorf, Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Why is Pepsi cooler than Coke? Why are iPods so popular? In 2005, how can you launch a successful brand? Want to know? Learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time, Debbie Millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture. Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, and my guest this hour is Axel Merck, who is the fund manager of the Merck Hard Currency Fund and the Merck Asian Currency Fund. Uh, welcome back to the show, Axel. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the um, imp- investment implications of uh, what you've, you've talked about here. Um, you're, you're saying that there's potential inflation down the road is where everything's being propped up. In the moment, we have deflation. Normally, you would think that the countries that are having these huge bailouts, like the U.S., their currencies would be going down. But in fact, the opposite's been happening. The U.S. dollar has been rising here against supposedly stronger currency. Why is that happening, and, and is that going to continue, or, or is that going to change? Well, we've had this this huge, you'd call it a short squeeze on the U.S. dollar, where where people were trying to liquidate every and any assets they had to raise cash, and um, and in that process, a lot of of money was repatriated into the U.S. And for the time being, the U.S. dollar has been a, a big beneficiary. And you you may have heard about the um, the credit lines that the Federal Reserve has given central banks throughout the world, and those have allowed um, foreign holders. 
um, of U.S. dollars to kind of keep those dollar holdings, roll any obligations forward, rather than having to liquidate dollar holdings. All of that has, has benefited the U.S. dollar for the time being. Um, the question is really going forward. Um, some people say U.S. is going to have better growth than the rest of the world will, will have, and the U.S. is going to be better positioned. Um, I believe that because the market forces warned a further contraction, um, any attempt to, to bail that out is going to be more costly in the U.S. than elsewhere, partially is because the, the source of all these problems is ultimately in the U.S. housing market. Um, the rest of the world is primarily upset because they loaned the U.S. money. And uh, if you want to bring it down to, to a simple term like that. And, and so going forward, I would think the rest of the world is going to be more reluctant to loan the U.S. money. Also, while the U.S. is busy trying to patch up the housing sector, the rest of the world is, is thinking about um, building new relationships. Um, the, the premier of China was just in, in Russia to sign a new oil ga- uh, pipeline deal. And um, the, that is where new money is likely to be deployed. Um, there is a big... Um, a big discussion about uh, changing the way financial institutions work, and odds are that U.S. financial institutions may lose an importance on a global scale. And and so, as far as we are concerned, we believe that um, it might be wise to, once the storm has passed, to to take some money and and invest it overseas. Um, also, if you if you look at for example, people, again, about Europe, they were, were thinking, oh, my God, these can't get their act together. But it was under the leadership of, of Gordon Brown in the U.K. that um, the European Union was able to, to act much faster than the Treasury in the U.S. to guarantee the banking system and provide stability to the market. And now in the next phase, however, when it comes to instituting spending programs, we believe while the Congress in the U.S. may be very efficient, um, European parliaments are, are going to be uh, far, far slower. And as far as the currency is concerned, that may be beneficial to the currency. Um, because when people are fearful, what's been happening is people have been fearful and going to the dollar as a safety hedge, the dollar and the yen, and you're saying that that may not last and they'd rather go to the harder currencies like the Swiss franc that, and euro. That may not last. And if you look at where that money has gone, typically when you have a surge in the currency, um, you have that money be deployed as investments. Even before the 1987 crash, um, you had money go into the, the U.S. dollar, but it was buying long-term bonds, whereas now the only thing or almost only thing that's been purchased is short-term treasuries. So it's a very clearly a, a flight to panic, yep. and odds are that as the, that the panic is abating and things are normalizing a tad, that some of that money will flow out again. And when it comes to currency, it's, it's all like with any investment, it's a cash flow issue. That as, and there will be more demand for other currencies. And there will be fewer buyers of U.S. dollars. And so we believe that um, the, the current r- rise in, in the U.S. dollar is a temporary one. Also, the, uh, the, the most recent um, announcement by the Federal Reserve was to, to loan money to, to countries like, like Korea. Well, that's a country that has, I think, the sixth or seventh largest U.S. dollar reserves. What does it mean? Why would the Federal Reserve loan money to a country like, like Korea, U.S. dollars? Um, all of these are attempts to, to, to prop up the dollar. Um, foreign investments in the U.S. were down 94.5% in the second quarter, um, which was as a result of foreign buyers um, not buying Fannie Mae paper anymore. And, and we know what happened afterwards, that the, the government paper was guaranteed, the Fannie paper was guaranteed then by the government. Um, and, and that money has come back. But I think people are still very afraid, policymakers, that the U.S. dollar may suffer. And, and so they're trying to prop it up for now. But when, next year, we'll be faced with having to finance an enormous tr- deficit, 
conservative estimates are over a trillion dollars. We believe it will easily be $2 trillion. Some of that money may be off balance sheet, but it's still money that needs to be raised. And we believe the cost of borrowing will go up. Uh, we believe that as a result um, that there will be programs to to try to lower the cost of long-term debt, either by fanny extending the program. Or we, we talked about the banks hoarding the cash. Well, if you don't want to lend to consumers, why shouldn't the banks buy the long bond? Um, they're getting the short. Uh, they're getting the um, the short-term cash from from the Federal Reserve, and then they can go out and buy the long-term debt. Um, it doesn't really help economic growth, but it, uh, other than keeping long-term interest rates lower, um, I just don't see how the dollar can can benefit in that sort of environment. What, what are the hard currencies that you think will benefit if the dollar goes down? What, what hard currencies do you like? Well, we consider the hot currency space the Western European currencies, um, notably the euro uh, and the Swiss franc. Um, then we do include uh, also, for example, the, the, the Swedish crown traditionally in that. Um, we have also traditionally included the Canadian dollar, and until a few months ago we had a, a good exposure to the Australian dollar. Now, Australian dollar exposure we, we cut drastically early in 2008, and mostly because the Australian economy also has an enormous current account deficit. When you have a current account deficit, um, you do need a lot of inflows to, to finance, uh, to stabilize your currency. A current account deficit is actually exactly the amount that you need to keep your currency stable, um, that amount of inflows you need. And, and so when there was, you can, you can support a current account deficit when you have economic growth. But when we saw signs that the, the world economy is slowing down, we shifted a lot of money from Australia over to Canada. And uh, how about the gold? Do you consider gold a hard currency? That's obviously the ultimate hard currency. We have about a 10% gold exposure in our hard currency fund. And uh, there, it's, uh, gold is as much of an insurance as anything. Um, the one criticism about gold was always it doesn't pay any interest. While during the height of the crisis, um, T-bills issued in Switzerland were issued at par, meaning that you got zero interest for holding the Swiss franc for three months. And people were just piling over backwards to buy those. Mm -hmm. And so given the choice between the two, well, why not hold some gold? And one word of caution about any diversification um, and, or buying gold or, or hard currencies or anything else is you want to buy something or do something um, when you can. You don't want to buy fire insurance when your house is on fire. Mm -hmm. in, in the gold sector, um, gold coins were simply not available um, or very difficult to get um, when people are rushing to buy them. They're still very difficult to get. And so whatever allocation you want to do, you want to do it while you can, and you just don't know when you will need it. Um, you have markets move by 8 or 10% in a day right now. So you want to take action sooner rather than later, not wait until, oh, I'm going to take action when actually this happens. You want to position yourself now to be ready when it happens. Um, and, and, and you're saying you're also... You're saying having that gold now will also benefit when you get to the inflationary uh, result of all of what we're talking about as far as all the spending and bailouts. That, that, that yes, and, and, and to, to me, it's, it's more a, a scenario-based investing that we don't know whether we're going to have this, this, this enormous inflation push that we're predicting, but we believe the risk of that happening is there. And investors who believe that risk is there, they may want to do something about it in their portfolio allocation rather than just hope things will all be dandy. And the, the risk profile in the market has changed. I believe traditional asset allocation um, has to be revisited because the risk in different asset classes have changed. And so if you, if you haven't changed your portfolio allocation, um, then odds are that, that you're not properly positioned to even where you want to be. 
um, other than to hope that, well, my, my equity portion has gone down dramatically, and so now I have a low equity portion and I'm just fine. But beyond that, you want to revisit the risk profile of anything that you hold and, and see, can I sleep with that at night? Or do I want to change some of that allocation to be to, to have a different sort of allocation going forward. Very good. Okay, well, it's been fascinating. I've been speaking with Axel Merck, who's at the Merck Mutual Funds. Again, you can find out more about him at his website, MerckFund.com, M-E-R-K Fund.com. His phone number is 866-MERK-FUND. And uh, a fascinating view on uh, hedging yourself against all the, the financial turmoil out there. Thanks very much for being on the show, Axel. It's my pleasure, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter on our website as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much, and we'll be back again next week on The Money Answer Show. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. 